It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. My normal life is not one of private jets and five-star hotels. So every time that we get back on tour again and you're, you know, you're in the nicest hotel in Budapest and you're just going like, wow, look at this. This is my room, you know, or whatever. And so I love that back and forth of like camping, staying in a Best Western with your dogs, just doing it the way that most people do it. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. We live in an era where social media is dominated by conspicuous displays of wealth and materialism. From million-dollar handbags to private spaceships, the public exhibition of personal riches is inescapable. But away from the crass spotlight of social media, there are still individuals who derive great satisfaction from utilizing their wealth to bring about positive social change. Today's guest is not only the bass player and a founding member of the band Pearl Jam, but he's also been an avid skateboarder since he was a teenager. He understands the transformative power that skateboarding has to foster perseverance, dedication, and provide a sense of community. He could have easily succumbed to the trappings of a rock star lifestyle, but his upbringing in rural Montana has made him acutely aware of the poverty and the limited opportunities that exist in his state. 
He self-financed the construction of over 27 skate parks across Montana. It's a source of immense gratification for him, and he often personally visits these parks to sweep the concrete, skate with the kids, and witness firsthand the impact that he's made. So how do you adjust from the luxuries of private jets and five-star hotels while touring with one of the biggest rock bands in the world, and then return to the tranquil lifestyle of Montana? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this prolific musician and member of one of the most enduring bands of all time. Today, bass player, patron, skateboarder, and proud Montana native, Mr. Jeff Amon. Sounds good. All right. Jeff, thanks for sitting down, man. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. Hey, Justin. Um, so are you, uh, are you well rested? You got a lot on your plate. You ready to hit the road? You ready for the summer? Uh, I, I'm ready to have summer off. We were working uh, super hard this spring to sort of be done by June 1st. And we're, we're, there's a couple little outstanding things right now, but trying to finish that up so um, I can just be outdoors and be up at the lake and go camping. And I hate working in the summer. It's like there's nothing worse than for me than being in Europe for seven weeks yeah. in the middle of like July when I know in Montana, it's like perfect. So, well, it's funny because, you know, you always struck me as the type of artist who, who really leans into and enjoys the performative part of being a, a musician, as opposed to just holding up in the studio and creating music. I mean, is that, is that correct? I mean, do you, do you view going on tour as the reward for creating music or has it become kind of a chore for you at this point? I think it's a, I think it's a, it's the biggest reward, like the first 15, 20 shows, you know, it's like, yeah, there's, there's so much nerves and uh, anticipation and anxiety about if the songs are going to go over or if uh, we're going to play them well enough and, and, and truly represent like the, the songs we made in the studio. Um, so, so that, like that first 20 shows is always amazing um it's just that it's hard to complain <laughs> in the you know in the position that we're in like we we travel uh pretty first class and um we enjoy each other's company so you know there's a lot of storytelling and laughter uh, when we're hanging out so it's i mean I, I grew up on a farm you know basically like cleaning out chicken pens and stuff so you know my uh my perspective is always when we're out there it's like wow like this is my gig. Like, this is incredible. Um, but it, it's a, you know, the traveling is a grind. Just getting on a plane every other day. is just like, it's just tough in your body. Um, and so that part of it is always tricky. It's, you know, waking up, going to the gym, just getting moving, just trying to get on stage and not look like a 60 year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you keep it feeling fresh? There must be some elements that you, you just, you phone in sometimes you just have to, I mean, you can't, you can't have it feel completely new and fresh after playing Jeremy for the 10,000th time, right? I mean, how, how do you avoid that? You know, I, I, you know, there's a, there's a handful of those older songs that are still really hard for me to play. Um, uh, like even flow is like super noty and I'm playing it on fretless and, you know, 32 years down the road, it's still like a challenge to play that song. Not perfect, but like at the level that I know that it kind of needs to be to, to sort of translate my part. Um, so that helps. Um, and it helps playing with like Matt Cameron, who like changes it up every night and throws interesting fills in. Um, sometimes like I, I normally don't focus on the crowd at all, but sometimes like if um, if some part of my thing feels workmanlike, I'll focus on the crowd or somebody in the crowd. And 
it always blows me away because I, I, I'm usually pretty inside whatever we're trying to do and hoping that my workmanlike performance is going to translate into to something. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a showman guy. Um, but sometimes if I go out and look at the crowd, it, it's pretty amazing to, to, to just focus in on somebody and just see how much the song means to them. You know, it's like, um, I, you know, it's how it is for me. It's like, it's, you know, when I, you know, when I saw music, when I first saw shows, I, I just remember getting weepy and like, you know, you just get caught up in the moment and it songs mean so much when they hit you at the right time. And so it's cool. It's cool when I open up enough to sort of take in the crowd or at least one person in the crowd. And that, that always keeps it fresh to me. Like I, I have a hard time with the idea that I could phone it in. Like, yeah. it's just like, I, I don't, I have no sense of humor about that stuff. I, I just sort of feel like we've been given this incredible opportunity and like somebody paid a hundred bucks to come see us. And like, I'm not, I just can't. There's not, there's like, whenever I start to feel that way, I just get mad. And then that turns into its own thing. Yeah. So no, it's cool that you have that sense, that sense of responsibility that, you know, people, they paid a hundred dollars or they, they got a sitter and they, they put all this effort. And then at yeah. the same time, it seems like you still have that perspective of what it felt to be like when you're 13 and a fan of a band and what that experience yeah. means to you, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like the first time I saw Black Flag, it was just like unbelievable, you know, just to be in the room and like it was like ninety five percent like just visceral physicality, and it and it was like so meaningful. Like that's that's the part about music that I've always liked the most is when it really means something. Like I, my first concert was Van Halen, and that was amazing, but like it didn't mean as much to me as watching Cat Power, watching Sean sing, or you know, it's like when something really comes from somewhere deep. And often dark, it's uh, it's just better. Wow. Well, I want to talk about your new project, Deaf Charlie. Um, I got a chance to listen to it. It's definitely a departure from your stuff with <laughs> with uh, with Pearl Jam. I mean, you guys do a Buzzcocks yeah. cover. It's a couple of tracks almost remind me of of almost like a arcade fire kind of a dance vibe to it. Cool. And you know, I'm wondering, was it refreshing to be able to step away from the weight and the success? and the history of Pearl Jam and just start with a clean slate and really just get to, to record whatever you felt like, was that part of the impetus for this project? Yeah. You know, and I think, I think even when I write for Pearl Jam, I, 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 you know, you want some part of what you're writing to sort of like resonate with somebody else in the band, but the hope is to like help push the band out to the edges a little bit and to try to create a new sound or a new kind of a song. Um, and I always feel like the biggest victories are when you get that song that you didn't think had a chance to make the record and it makes the record, you know, like Ed falls in love with some part of it. And he goes, man, I love this thing. And you're like, really awesome. You know? And so like this project, it went even further that way because John Wicks, who not only played drums on it, but really was kind of the producer of the songs. Uh, he was taking the stuff, really out into these places that I had never been before. And it, it's uh, a lot of pop elements and reggae and just kind of more kind of weird keyboardy things. I mean, he comes from like a jazz background. So he, he's like one of the best listeners I've ever been around. Like he just hears stuff that I, I don't hear. And uh, that part was super exciting because I, I just could try to stay open to it. Even when he would send something back and I'd be like, Whoa, what the hell is this? I would sit with it for a couple of weeks and about half the time I would, I would kind of fall in love with it. And, and mostly because it was like brand new territory, you know, and he was, and he was really pushing me in 
in ways that I've sort of never been pushed. Like he was like, dude, your falsetto is great. Like we, you got to do more falsetto. And I was like, really? Like that's just supposed to be a little textural thing tucked behind the low voice. He's like, no, it has to be all falsetto. And so I just kind of went along with what the producer was telling me to do. So um, that part was exciting. I was, I was reading that this project really started during COVID. And, you know, after listening to it, I really got a sense that I don't think this project would have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. I mean, either A, because you guys had so much time on your hands, but also just the way that you recorded it. I mean, you were sending tracks back and forth to each other rather than, in most cases, like being in the same room and being able to bounce ideas off of each other in real time. And, you know, in a way, it almost reminds me of a personal experience, like shooting film in the sense that you have to wait some time to get that contact sheet back. And something about that time lag forces you to have like a really different relationship with that material, both when you're creating it and also when you're kind of listening to or reviewing it. Um, And it it creates something really unique. I mean, do you think that's a fair analogy? Yeah, I think I I mean, I think, you know, as an artist, you know, sometimes when there's no real reason for you to be doing the art. Like if you're just out shooting pictures because you're like wowed by whatever's going on, like by nature or the scene, you're just doing it to do it. That's kind of when it's the most fun. And and this thing that there was never any intention to make a record. We were just sort of like, okay, shit, we're stuck at home. Like, who do I know in town that I could sit six feet across from a, you know, a picnic table and like talk about this stuff and at least have a little teeny bit of an in-person connection with and that's sort of what it became. It just became this, um, you know, this art project to sort of just, you know, there, you know, you can take more chances when there's nobody expecting something at the other end of it. On the flip side, though, was there something a little kind of intimidating about the complete creative control of like not having Ed there saying, ah, I don't like that or I do like that? I mean, and just there, there was no kind of like checking your inspiration. Uh, well, I mean, John was checking it. Um, so, you know, in that way it was collaborative. I, you know, I, I think all of us, I think all of us, you know, Ed included, I think likes to break free from the Pearl Jam, you know, model and how we, you know, sort of how we interact with each other. And partly because it's, it's five of us and it's a lot of voices and sometimes just to be on your own or to have one other person, it's just simplifies, you know, that creative process. And then usually at the end of that, you're sort of like, can't wait to get in the room with the other five guys, you know? Makes you, makes you respect it more and, and appreciate it more. Yeah, you play it, you, you know, you have to bring it up to a, a level that's, you know, everybody expects from you. And then, and then also it's like, you get these assassins, you know, you get like, you know, <laughs> everybody in the band can just like deliver at a, you know, at a level that's like, you know, we've sort of expected of each other and we've sort of, you know, I think, um, I think we take it for granted sometimes until somebody reminds you like, oh, my God, like Mike McCready is like incredible or, you know. So, yeah, it's good. It's good to go back and forth. You know, I think it's helped the band from the very beginning. We've always had lots of side projects and nobody gets too jealous, you know, so it's good. Yeah. So I was also reading you. You did the score for the, the Hulu series Under the Banner of Heaven about the Church of the Latter-day Saints murders. And I'm curious what the experience was working on a score, because it would seem like a very different collaborative process in the sense that you're making music strictly in the service of somebody yep. else's vision. You know what I mean? As opposed to a band where whatever, whatever your creative process is or whatever the politics of the band are, 
If any one individual member comes up with an amazing idea, that at least has the potential of manifesting or becoming part of the final product. Where in this case, like you're working around a fixed piece of artwork and kind of adapting music around that. Was that a really different experience for you? Was it challenging to work within that framework or was it really fun? Well, you know, you know, what was unique about making the music for this was that they, they fell really behind schedule. And, and, and I was sort of locked into these two two week periods where I was going to make the bulk of the music. And then, and then once the stuff was getting finally edited, we could tweak stuff. Uh, so we got, we got through the first two weeks, both Josh's and I, and we, we hadn't seen a thing like they were so far behind. And so like I had done a fair amount of work leading up to that. Like I I reread the book, I read the script. I had a bunch of conversations with Lance Black about like what his vision was for what the stuff was going to look like. And um, we just made music sort of based on a, a feeling of what we thought the, it was going to look like. You hadn't seen any footage or dailies or anything? We, we saw right at the very end, we saw like a, a string of dailies of like the parade, which it was like a two, it was two hours of like this parade, which ended up being like probably 20 seconds in the, in, you know, in the series. And they told us, they said, this isn't super representative, but at least you can see you can kind of see, you know, what's going on and what the characters look like, because I think all the brothers were in that scene and the dad and the mom. And so the second time we came around, we still hadn't seen an episode. This is like two months later. And right in the middle of that, we got two episodes. And so that was when we sort of got to really get into it and go, OK, well, let's let's work on these two episodes and get those things kind of fitted to what we think is happening and then let's create a bunch of more music that we think is going to like, because now we know what, you know, kind of know what it's, it's going to look like and what it feels like and what these big spaces, because there, there's, you know, there's parts of that series that have, I think, I think we made, I can't remember what is a hundred minutes or no, 300 minutes of music total for the wow. thing. So, so there's, there's, there's these big spaces for music. So we went back in and spent like the last four or five days, like just making these big thematic pieces that were. I mean, we probably have 30 of them uh, where there's a there's a theme at some point that really coalesces with like a power trio playing. And then on the on the outskirts of it, there's all these different ways that we're playing the theme with different instruments and whatever. And so I think it was an unorthodox way to do it, because I know a lot of people cut right. It sounds like right to the deal. Um, But it was during COVID also. And so we it was like the chance to be, in you know, where they were shooting wasn't even an option. So um and it was awesome. Like Lance really, you know, really trusted us. And that was a big deal for a first time, first timer. Was the music that you made to what you imagined it to look like very different than the music you made after you had seen what it actually looks like? Uh, no, the, the, you know, the main change that we made was we went sparser. We, we tried to make it even more dynamic and more quiet. We, we had the, we had this big room set up with all these loopers and, and keyboards connected to the loopers. And we were sort of tuning the room to these really kind of low volume, like very symphonic random tape loops of, you know, little bits. We'd pick a key and then you could just take any of the notes from the key and you could play those notes. And, you know, you'd get these amazing times when the thing would sort of coalesce and everything would kind of come together for 30 seconds and it would, you know, create like this, loud dynamic and sometimes we would grab those pieces and we would like string together three minutes of it and then we would go back and play as a power trio over that stuff but it was um it was kind of a vision i've had for a long time to to make an ambient record 20 years ago i had this idea when uh loopers first came out and um this was just like the reason to do it pretty cool 
So I'll switch gears for a second. I know you're doing some dates later on this year with yeah. Pearl Jam, and you're also doing some some Def Charlie dates. I would imagine that the accommodations and the tour budgets for those two different acts are going to be vastly different. <laughs> and you know, we had on we had on Chris Schiff from the Foo Fighters a couple times on this podcast, and you know, we were laughing hysterically at the comically different experience he had touring with the Foos versus his solo project. I mean, he'd literally be on a private jet one day and then lugging his own gear in to, to yeah. have sound check the next day. Is there something refreshing about the prospect of, of stripping away all those creature comforts after so many years as a successful musician, musician? I mean, is there something about like kind of putting some fire under you and making you hungry again? Are you looking forward to that? Yeah. You know, I, I think my normal life is not one of private jets and, you know, five-star hotels. So every time that we get back on tour again and you're, you know, you're in the nicest hotel in Budapest and you're just going like, wow, look at this, you know, this is, this is my room, you know, or whatever. And so I love that back and forth of like camping, staying in a Best Western with your dogs, you know, just doing it the way that most people do it. And um, I, I mean, I love that back and forth. Um, I think, you know, we'll think about like lighter uh, amps and less instruments and things on the Def Charlie tour um, just to be smart about it. I mean, Pearl Jam, you yeah. can sort of be like, yeah, I want like three eight by 10 cabinets and I want like 15 bases out here just because you can, you know, so... Yeah. I mean, I, I was looking at the lineup for the Ohana Festival that Def Charlie's playing. And, and I noticed, you know, Def Charlie, you guys are sixth on the bill for the night you're playing. And, you know, I know that the, I, I know that the, 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 the backstage real estate for festivals can sometimes be very political in terms of which bands get which real estate. You know, so I'd imagine a scenario where if you show up and Def Charlie gets like a fucking broom closet and the Foos and Eddie Vedder have like a trailer with an AstroTurf patio and a bar. I mean, is there going to be some friendly competition going on there? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just go hang out in Ed's world and then uh, I'll go steal stuff from Foo Fighters. Yeah. <laughs> It's good to it's good to know somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I would imagine you guys are you're all friendly, but I mean, I, I think that just the the con the contrast that you might experience this this summer, I think, yeah. would be pretty pretty funny. Yeah, we. I mean, the fact that we're even like in the middle of the, of that bill is like a miracle. So, um, you know, we're not taking any of it for granted. We're we're feel very uh, lucky to be invited, and uh, yeah, it, it, it'll be fun. It, it's 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 a a crazy amount of work for one show or two shows, whatever we're going to end up doing, but um, it should be great. You know, switching gears again, I, I took my, I took my son to the museum of modern art last week and, you know, walking around and looking at, at the way that stuff is put together, it was really interesting. It made me realize that a lot of times that these art historians, when they group artists together, either, you know, into a movement or a school or an ism that a lot of times, a it's done by outsiders and, and B a lot of times those artists, other than maybe some cultural connections or geographic connections, they don't often have that much in common with each other in the same sense that, you know, if you look at Pearl Jam and Nirvana, they're very different groups, you know, even though they've been kind of inextricably linked under this umbrella of like grunge. And, you know, I'm curious, what was your relationship with the term grunge while it was happening in the present? Is it something that you identified or is it something that you at least recognized why people put those groups together because of the Seattle connection? Did you resent it? I mean, what was, what was going through your mind while that was happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody resented it. I think, uh, you know, I, th that was, that was what they were leading with. Like, I mean, the temple of the dog record came out and it kind of came and went. And then all of a sudden it came out and it said the Seattle sound with members of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And it, 
I remember being offended by it because Chris wrote those songs. So at the very least, it should have said with members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. It shouldn't have said it shouldn't have been the other way around. So when that whole scene sort of got co-opted, I think all of us got a little bit you know, funny about because we all knew we all knew we all knew what we represented. And we knew and, I, you know, I, I we knew that, you know, I knew Chris from Nirvana five years before Nirvana. Um, he was hanging out with the Melvins guys. So. When I think about grunge, that term got coined in the 1989 or 1990 or whatever. And I, I always thought it was a very sub pop sort of mud honey specific term. And so you, Nirvana could probably fall into that category because I think they were heavily influenced by mud honey and uh, the Melvins, who I think probably could be in that drop D grunge category. But, you know, I, it's like I was in Green River with Mark. So it's like I, I, I felt connected to it. And at the same time, when we were done through River, I wanted to do something totally different. I mean, and every time a new band has come around, I think Stone and I both have sort of felt like that we wanted to go further out and not stay attached to the last thing that we did. So um, 30 years later, like, I'm super proud to be part of that group of bands. I mean, all those bands are like amazing, fucking amazing bands. That's what I was getting at is like, you know, there's such a nostalgia for the, that time and such a nostalgia yeah. for the nineties right now. And I mean, with 30 years in the rearview mirror, does some of the sting and the resentment of being grouped together and having that label put on you, is that kind of disappeared and it's turned a little bit more into just kind of pride oh, at yeah. this point? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's well, it's, and, so, and a lot of those people are gone now. So that part is like, you know, even the folks that maybe you're competing with like sort of friendly competitiveness. Um, those are the people that you want to champion even more now. Like you want to champion, Andy and Chris and Kurt and Mark Lanigan and, you know, the people that were a big part of that early scene and like, and that were like all incredible songwriters and lyricists and like, you know, generational talent. So, you know, you look back at the time and you go like, that might've been like the last real scene, you know? I mean, you, you could argue like the 2000s New York scene, you know, had a similar thing going on, but, um, like from Meet Me in the Bathroom. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that that's that's definitely a legit, legit scene. Um, but um, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, I mean, I met Stone almost 40 years ago. So, and we wow. started playing a band. So it's that's um, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. 
free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, you know, it seems like nowadays that, you know, almost any rock star or any celebrity or any personality that has any sort of legitimate platform has a pet charity or a pet cause that they're attached to. And, you know, sometimes it's sincere. Sometimes it comes off as a little self-serving. But you founded the Montana Pool Service and you've built 27 skate parks across Montana. And you didn't just lend like your likeness. You actually funded those those skate parks yourself. And in some cases, maintain them yourself. I'm like, you literally show up with a broom and make sure that the drains are clear. And, and, you know, you're very personally invested in that. And I'm wondering like, why, why was it so important for you to build those parks? Like talk to me about why that cause is so dear to your heart. Well, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty natural, you know, the timeline is so, is so natural. Like I always tell people that I, at the very beginning, I was just sort of following some energy that I felt was happening around the state. There was like, um, a movement about 25 years ago in town here in Missoula to get a skate park built here. And so I got involved with a handful of those folks and went to a bunch of meetings. Um, I knew the Grindline guys who were building parks uh, in the Northwest. And um, we got those guys to come out and build the park. And then, I, and then I had this crazy idea to build a skate park in my hometown, which is up in north central Montana. I got Grindline to come up there, and it was probably one of the most rural projects that they'd ever worked on at that point. But um, they did it because I had done them a favor a few years earlier. So um, I had them back into a corner on that. And, and then it just, like, just kind of kept snowballing. Then like the towns next to these other towns started wanting to build skate parks, and then you'd go meet with like a couple of parents and a bunch of kids. And then you run into some kids at the park that you built in San Ignatius and you'd find out that they were from Browning, the Blackfeet reservation. And they said, yeah, man, we have like 10 guys up there that skate. we got a couple ramps indoors at a bingo hall. And it just became this thing where every summer you drive around the state and you go to parks and you meet people. And we just followed the energy with it. And it's, uh, we're a solid 10 years into the, the bulk of the work that we've done. And it's like, you know, we have like 10 towns penciled in for the next three years. So we just finished a park in Standing Rock where we're having a, a grand opening uh, in two weeks. We're building a park in Clinton. We, uh, where's the other park? Oh, Glasgow, which is in the northeastern part of the state. So it's, um, it's my home state. I've known people from all over the state since I was a kid. So it just takes me around and I get to reconnect with people and I get to meet the new generation. And, and now there's like a bunch of rippers around the state because they've had these parks for the last five to 12, 15 years. Now some of those kids are going to camps and like saving their money to go to California. And like, it's a super cool thing to see uh, sort of come out of nothing, you know? Um, It's so fantastic. I mean, it's funny. We've actually had a lot of skateboarders on this podcast. We had Paul Rodriguez. We had Tony Hawk. We had uh, Leo Fitzpatrick, who starred in the movie Kids. We had Alex Corcoran, who was the store manager for the original Supreme Store on Lafayette Street in New York for many right. years. And it's interesting, in all of those conversations, like organically, the same theme kept coming up. And that was this sense of identity 
the sense of purpose and the sense of community that they all discovered through skateboarding. And, you know, I was reading this statistic recently. They're saying that the state of Montana has one of the highest suicide rates in the entire nation. And, you know, when you're building these skate parks, you're not just building a place for these kids to go get exercise and to recreate and to like have a safe place to hang out. I mean, it's, I feel like it's more valuable than that. It's more important than that. You're actually helping them foster a sense of like belonging and, and self-worth, you know? And I'm wondering, have you had an opportunity to like have firsthand experience of that transformation and that effect on some of these kids? I mean, have you, have you created some really interesting friendships with these kids and seen the road that they might've gone down had that park not been there? Yeah. I mean, I, I, and, and I grew up in like a crazy isolated area in North central Montana. So I, I, I really, that, that was the focus. Once this thing started rolling, it was like, let's try to get, you know, we got a map out. We're like, let's try to get a park in Troy and Plentywood. And we just pointed to these places in the state that were like the most isolated. Lewistown has an amazing park it's in the very center of the state. You know, there, there's a group of uh, seven or eight kids uh, up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Browning um, that we built that park maybe eight, nine years ago. And I have pictures of me with these kids that were like, 11, 12 years old. And now they're all like 20. Two of them have that babies They're They all rip. You know, if you happen to be at that park and you watch those kids, like you can tell it's their home park because they're just rolling in and out of everywhere. And they just like, you know, it's uh, so second nature to them. And they're, they have such unique, cool style. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of is that the park sort of gave them a clubhouse to sustain. Like, the, I mean, they have this deep, deep friendship that you just don't see kids that age have, you know, there's these seven, eight kids that call each other on their shit. And if any of them starts messing up too bad, they pull them back into the thing and they're so supportive of each other. And it's like, it all came from skateboarding, like, which who, who, who knew 10 years ago that that would be a byproduct of this thing that you're doing. Mostly we thought we were giving them a place just to like get that pent up energy out and, and, and a place that they felt with that was theirs. And that was, a, it was a safe place for them. And, um, it's just so cool to see the camaraderie of those kids and they're getting in a car in two weeks and they're going to follow me out to standing rock, which is like 1200 miles away. And we're going to hit all the skate parks on the way out. So uh, that's just going to be, you know, that's kind of like, that's like end goal stuff when you're doing this stuff. I mean, that must be so, so gratifying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ironic because you, you know, you're, you're a successful guy. I'm sure you got some money in the bank and it's, it's beautiful that you found reward by doing something like that, as opposed to spending your money on other things. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's admirable. It's the best. It's the best. It's like, I, you know, I, I can't imagine there being a better way to spend your money than that. You know? Like, it's just like, yeah. and it's skateboarding. It's like, you're designing skate parks and making these cool things. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like dream, it's like dream stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I found a great quote of yours. I want to read. You said, I built a roller coaster in their hometown, but you actually fall off this roller coaster and it hurts when you fall <laughs> off, but you're teaching kids to get up when they fall. And it's a metaphor for life. I mean, I think that's, it's such a, it's such a great thing. And I'm wondering like those opportunities that you're giving these kids how does that relate to your childhood? Are these opportunities that you wish that you would have had when you were a kid or are these opportunities that you were fortunate enough to have and you're paying it back and, and showing gratitude? Like, what was your upbringing like? I mean, we, we, we didn't have a ton of money, but I never knew we didn't have a ton of money until I was like 15 and we hung out with cousins who were like solidly middle-class. Um, that's a tribute to my parents. Like my parents both worked their asses off. My dad always had like four or five jobs. 
he was a work first, uh, very logical, like sort of instilled in me that anybody can do anything, uh, which is a pretty great thing to have sort of pounded into you as a kid. Like, uh, it's like, we don't need to pay an electrician. Like I can figure this out. You know, he'd like shock himself and like, but he wired our whole house. Yeah. This is before YouTube too, right? Right. And he, and, and he didn't, like I was into sports and stuff just because I'm in a small town and you're just looking for stuff to do. Um, like he didn't come see me play sports till I was a senior in high school. Cause he just didn't understand or didn't care about that part of it. But when I got into skateboarding, it was about building something. It was about building a deck. It was about putting a deck together. It was like almost mechanical. And then when I wanted to build a ramp, he taught me how to build a ramp. He got out there with me and said, this is how you get a string and you like, what's it say? The 10 foot radius. And so you, because the string has to be that long and then you, you know, make the templates. And so he skateboarding was an opportunity for him to like sort of teach me how to be uh, a carpenter. And so that we, we, we've always had this, we still have this connection over skateboarding where we, we talk about that, that, that part of it. And he's, it's it's a completely opposite of most of my friends. Most of my friends who are skateboarders, their parents wanted them to be a football player, <laughs> and yeah. thought that by being a skateboarder they're a loser. And so you know, in that regard, my my, my relationship with my parents and and skateboarding uh, is pretty unique. That's cool. There's another quote I pulled that was really interesting. You said, you know, we have more world class concrete per capita in Montana than than anywhere else, even though that's true it's not the Montana that people see on Yellowstone. You know, talk to me about some of the, the economic disparities in Montana, especially amongst the Native American communities. There's a million people in the state and it's the fourth biggest state out of the 50 states. I mean, I think we're like the 40, I think we're 45th or 46th in population. I think there's only, I think South Dakota, North Dakota, a couple other states are below us. So that gives you an idea of like the isolation that we have in this state. And, and there's like four or five cities that make up 600,000 of the million. So there's 400,000 people in the whole rest of the state. In those isolated areas, you know, they a lot of those places used to be uh, wheat farms and and cattle ranches and and kind of medium to small size farms and ranches. And now they've all sort of become these conglomerate ranches and the the small farms are gone. So in those communities there's just not a lot to do. And at the same time it's like they're sort of like the best place that you could raise your family because you can just put your kid on a bike and say, see at lunch and, and feel good about it. Um, the other end of it is if your kid has a, has a cell phone, he's comparing his life in Browning, Montana to the hip hop scene in New York city or Atlanta or whatever. And it's like, I knew I had a little bit of that as a kid. Like I would get magazines and you look at your cream magazine and there'd be backstage photos and Max is Kansas City in New York and be like, wow, like, why am I here? I want, I want to be in that place. And it was so, it seemed so, it almost seemed like it didn't exist. It was so magical. And it was so far away. And I think it's almost worse now because on a daily basis, these kids are being reminded that they're in an isolated area. And I think that probably yeah. is tough on mental health. There's a common ethos amongst the culture of skateboarding, surfing, particularly in Hawaii and, and punk rock. And that's that, you know, really self-aggrandizing and really flaunting yourself is really is really frowned upon. And, you know, basically I come from a culture and I assume you did too. Like if you were the shit, other people told you, you didn't have to tell them, right. you know, and it's so anti it's so antithetical to this culture that we live in of, of social media. And it's so antithetical to this like 
selfie-obsessed, narcissistic culture that we're in. And, you know, it's really, it's refreshing to see somebody who is genuinely famous and genuinely successful just putting their head down and doing the work and doing something generous and selfless and being humble about it. So, you know, it's very admirable. And, you know, I want to just want to say thank you on behalf of all those kids. It's, it's great what you're doing. I, I mean, I, I, I'm the lucky one. I mean, it's like, I, it's, I, it's the thing I look forward to the most every year is just getting out there in the summer and just hanging out with all those kids and building new parks. It's like, it's, it really is, it hits a, a creative spot in me. That's like almost like the perfect spot. You know, it just feels like it's such a, um, it just brings me so much joy. It's just, uh, it's really fantastic. Um, I can tell, I can tell. The celebrity part of like any of this is the worst part. Like, you know, like being recognized or any of that stuff, that's the worst part of all of this. And in some ways, Pearl Jam from the beginning, we've sort of shied away from that part of it and really have tried to focus on doing the work and putting your head down and just trying to write better songs and trying to be better humans and, uh, it's what I tell young kids, you know, it's what I tell young musicians, because I think I think the new generation has latched on to the celebrity part of it. You know, the amount of likes and all the stuff, the social media stuff. And it's a weird thing to sort of like hang your self-esteem on like social media is just a weird, just a weird thing. Yeah. And it's intoxicating. We're all we all fall victim to it. We all do. Sure. No, no. I'm. It's like ridiculous. Like I, I, I have to physically put my phone somewhere for like four hours and. You know, it's and you feel and you feel that connection that you know the thing is calling out to you. You know, like <laughs> like I was lucky enough to not have it for thirty or forty years. So it's like yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like if that's what you grew up. Like you see your parents are on it. You know, as soon as you you know you're two years old, you're really paying, starting to pay attention. And then most of these kids are getting you know they have phones and they're eight or ten years old or whatever. And so it's just the way that you feel love and it's like, it's just super fucked up. It's like, yeah. But I mean, it comes back to, you know, the, the, the work you're doing with these skate parks and the, the sense of community that you're helping to foster. It's just like Twitter is not a real place, but that skate park is, you know, and those friends are. And I think that hopefully that's helping teach, teach kids that lesson. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, making a trick and all, and your, all your friends going bananas. Like, is there, is there a better feeling than that? that you know it's like it's like writing a song and having your bandmates go like fuck that song's amazing i mean that's like that's kind of what you live for is those moments when you you know you sort of like put the work in and then you pull you pull a move off or you catch the wave and have the ride of your life and all your friends you know two of your friends see it and you're like you know that's like stoke that will last you months you know so yeah, yeah. Well, we always like to end the podcast by asking the guests to plug something that they're not directly involved in, that they feel isn't getting enough attention, whether it's like a book, a movie, an artist. I'm going to give you a pass on the social cause because you do, you have that, you have that box checked. Um, and, and if you want to do something light, like a TV show, that's cool. But do you have anything uh, that you want to just give a shout out to that you uh, want people to know about? Well, um, I read a lot, uh, uh, there was a book that I read last year. Um, it's a biography on the Native American athlete, Jim Thorpe. It's called A Path to Lightning. And it's like, it's one of the best autobiographies I've ever read. It's really dense. And it just reminds us that maybe the greatest athlete in American history was Native American and that he he won medals in the Olympics he was part of the first pro football league. He played professional baseball. He was uh, sort of akin to Duke, 
you know, like he was that he was very, very similar. And I think I think there's politicians trying to bury stories of people that aren't white right now. And so I think it's so important to keep those stories alive. Of It's like what could have been had, you know, Native Americans sort of been if that situation would have been handled with uh, any sort of tact, like who knows what would happen? Because, I mean, you know, almost 100 years ago, Jim Thorpe was the greatest athlete in the world by far for a solid 10 years. And so you want to be inspired. It's a, it's a pretty amazing story. Well, that's an excellent plug, Jeff. I really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, you're doing some great work. I'm really excited. Hopefully our paths will cross this summer. Uh, I'd love to come out and see you play and, uh, keep up the good work, man. Yeah. Great to meet you, Justin. Yeah. Right on. I'll see you at Ohana for sure. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thanks Justin. Take yeah. care, man. See you. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.